Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. Well, good morning, Epicos, Milwaukee. Whether you're at Mayfair Road or West Allis or Sherman Park or joining us online, we're very thankful that you made the choice to worship with us today. There's a common saying in the Midwest. I'm sure if you've spent any amount of time here, you're familiar with it. If you don't like the weather, wait a day. Someone suggested that uh, last weekend we experienced all four seasons. Summer on Saturday, fall on Sunday, winter on Monday, even saw some snow, and then spring again on Tuesday. Now, where we are today, I really can't figure out. We're stuck in a very bad pattern. But one of my wife and I's favorite things to do throughout the year is to go to the Chicago Botanic Garden. Last Saturday, we enjoyed the 78-degree temperature and soaked in the beauty of the magnolias, the daffodils, and the wide variety of plants and flowers that had begun to emerge from the ground and were uh, beginning to uh, open up as well. We were walking through the garden with thoughts of the promises, the covenants of God, and so on in the back of my brain, because when we're going through a series like this, it's always back there. And as we were doing that, I remembered the covenant God made with Noah in the aftermath of the great flood that we find in Exodus chapter 8. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. Now here's the promise. While the earth remains, summer and harvest, cold and winter, day and night shall never cease. Which really brings us back to our current journey through the book of Exodus. And if you have your Bible with you, uh, it's easy to find. It's the second book in the Bible. And we're dealing with the second chapter today. And you can also find it around page 45 in the Bible in the pew ahead of you. If I were to summarize Exodus in just one sentence, it would be this. The continued work of God in fulfilling his promises. And what are those promises that we've been looking at? Well, there's the promise of the land, the land of Canaan. There's the promise of a great nation of people from the line of Abraham. And the promise of a savior to destroy the curse of sin that was brought about in the Garden of Eden. And what's the difference between a covenant and a promise as far as God is concerned? Well, a covenant is like a formal agreement between two parties. And both parties have a role to play. In terms of God, it's a, it's a special relationship, usually with a seal of reminder. As with Noah, the rainbow was that seal. A promise is basically one-sided. And the promises of God are based on his character and his nature. So today we're going to look at Exodus chapter 2, 
and uh, we're going to discover what happens next in this tale. Another title that comes to my mind for this particular passage, if we were making a movie out of it, would be From Prince to Alien. The subtitle would be From Royalty in Egypt to Refugee in a Foreign Land. Perhaps a better title would be God Prepares Moses to be the Deliverer of Israel. And to be sure, it was going to be a difficult process of preparation. Last week, Pastor Tommy took us through the first 10 verses of this chapter, which recount the circumstances surrounding the birth of Moses. You recall that Pharaoh had issued an edict that all newborn Hebrew boys were to be killed, but the girls were allowed to live. But Moses' mother and sister were used by God to protect his birth. When he was three months old, they placed him in the Nile in a basket where Pharaoh's daughter spotted him and sent her servant to retrieve him. Even though he was a boy, she disobeyed her father's edict and allowed him to live. Having watched all of this from a safe place, Moses' sister steps in and offers to find a wet nurse to care for the baby, who, of course, just happened to be Moses' mother. Now, you might think, whoa, that was a close one. But God provided a way. We don't know a great deal about the life of young Moses growing up in an Egyptian household. We do know that he had a very high status and privilege as the son identified as the son of the daughter of Pharaoh, which made him a prince of Egypt and potentially a very powerful man within that nation. So what happened to change the status of Moses in Egypt from a prince to a fugitive in a desert? Well, our passage today gives us some insight into the kind of person Moses was and, and the challenges he faced as an Israelite who grew up in the royal palace of Egypt. The first insight is that Moses had a confused identity. The passage begins... When Moses had grown up, which raises the question immediately, how old was he? How old is grown up? Is it 18, 25, 35? Well, we get some further insight in the book of Acts in the New Testament in the seventh chapter where we read the speech given by Stephen before the high priest. In Acts chapter 7, we read this. Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was, how many years old? Forty years old. It came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. After seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But unfortunately, they did not understand. Now Moses, again adopted by a princess, which makes him a prince, contemplates the hard labor of his fellow Israelites. Again, Stephen says, it came into Moses' heart to visit his brothers the children of Israel. Now this identity crisis provides the background for what happens next 
which really changes the course of Moses' life. First thing that happens, Moses kills an Egyptian while defending an Israelite. Verse 11, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, looked on their burdens, and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Now, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now, Moses at some point realized his own true identity. He was a Hebrew, not an Egyptian. And seeing the burdens placed on the fellow people, by his fellow people, by the Egyptians, he had compassion on them, and he, he, he felt that he needed to do something. He felt that he needed to act. But he did something rather impulsively. Now, we might jump to the, <clears throat> to the conclusion that certainly he did the right thing. But did he have the right to take the life of another human being? We don't know how severely the Israelite had been beaten or the cause for his punishment, although it probably had something to do with his service as a slave. Such beatings were not uncommon, and as time goes by, when the plagues begin, they would only get worse. But again, Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7 suggests he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. Did Moses have the authority to do this as a prince of Egypt? Probably not. But he thought he got away with it. Notice what it says. It says he looked this way and that way and seeing no one, he went ahead and struck him down. Now, unfortunately, Moses' heart was right in his concern for his own people, but his response was human and of the flesh. The second thing that happens is that Moses discovered that he has been seen. When he went out the next day, verse 13, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? In our language today, it would be kind of like, who died and made you the boss? Are you going to kill me, a Hebrew as well? like you killed the Egyptian? Well, now Moses was afraid. Even his own people, who he felt that he was defending, questioned his actions. And he's probably thinking, what's wrong with this picture? He was probably thinking of that song, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, I think I'll go and eat worms, right? Or some Egyptian version of that children's song. Although Moses' heart was right, his actions we're wrong. So he's asking himself the question, what do I do now? That question is answered for him by Pharaoh in verse 15, which brings us to the third thing that happens. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. What do you suppose was going through Moses' mind at this point? Perhaps it was a bit of an identity crisis. 
He was, in essence, adopted into Pharaoh's household, but his birth mother was there to care for him and guide him in Hebrew tradition. Now, however, even Pharaoh was trying to kill him. So Moses is now an adult and faced with asking adult questions and making adult decisions about his life. So you can understand his struggle with identity. Who am I really? And who should I identify with? The Israelites? The Egyptians? All of the above? None of the above? Questions that led him to fleeing from Egypt, where he faces his next crisis, and we get our second insight. The second insight is that Moses had a conflicted loyalty. Verse 15 ends with these words, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs of water for their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may come and eat bread. So Moses flees to the land of Midian. You need to understand that Moses had traveled the modern-day equivalent of several hundred miles before planes, trains, and automobiles existed. As a matter of fact, if you put that into Google Maps, basically Cairo to Saudi Arabia, it'll come up with this answer. Can't find a way there. But somehow Moses found a way. It was a trip that took him several weeks at least. So when he sat down by a well, it was well-deserved. Apparently, there was no Collectivo or Starbucks in the area. Then he meets up with the seven daughters of the priest of Midian. Daughters <clears throat> from, to, and defends them against some of the shepherds who were harassing them at the well. And we see once again his concern over people who are treated wrongly, regardless of who the victims are, in this case being the seven daughters of the priest. The daughters report this to their father. An Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds. Why did they assume he was Egyptian? Well, he's probably still wearing the same clothes he wore when he left from Egypt. Imagine their surprise when they discovered he was a Hebrew. Ruel, the Midianite, whose name actually means friend of God, welcomes Moses, not because of his heritage, but because of the actions that he took to defend his daughter. Imagine the confusion Moses must have experienced. Who am I? Where do I belong? <clears throat> to whom? Do I belong? Well, what was the conflict that he faced? It was basically a conflict between his heritage as a Hebrew and his citizenship as an Egyptian. Now, a lot of people face that same kind of conflict today. 
For Kay and I, researching our heritage has been kind of a hobby to try to determine where our families originated somewhere in Europe. And we've learned a lot of fun things along the way doing that research and a few not-so-pleasant things as well. Kay can trace part of her heritage, English, Irish, and Scottish, all the way back to some of the early settlers here in America. My heritage here in the U.S. came from a different part of Europe, Polish, Dutch, and German, in the mid-19th century, all of whom settled in Chicago, much like many from those countries settled here in Milwaukee. Well, when my Dutch-German mother became engaged to a Polish sailor, her parents were not happy or even accepting. Neither were my Polish grandparents happy when my father left the Catholic Church to marry a Presbyterian. Even as a child, I, I experienced what it meant to be shunned by aunts and uncles and even cousins. And my dad being the oldest of 10 kids, I had a lot of cousins, most of whose names I couldn't even remember today all of which gives our children a very confusing mixed heritage. But in a way, our citizenship as American overshadows the differences of our origins. But our heritage as believers transcends even those identities. When we become members of the body of Christ, which transcends our heritage in this life, we become brothers and sisters in Christ as members of the body of Christ. We are part of the body of Christ now and forever. The Apostle Paul often dealt with this identity struggle himself and speaks about it specifically as it relates to our new identity in Christ. Ephesians 2, 16, Paul writes, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Paul reminds us in Romans 11 that Moses' story, Israel's story, is also our story. We have been grafted into the family of God through Jesus Christ. I've had the privilege of traveling to many different countries around the world where I've had opportunities to minister to and alongside of people of many different cultures. And it has never ceased to amaze me how in the name of Jesus we can come together and experience being one in Christ. No longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens as members of the household of God. Our future as believers will make that reality an eternity. Paul writes in Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Sometimes we forget that, and it creates problems for us even today. Together with believers around the world, we're part of the family of God and will be fellow citizens in heaven for all eternity. No loyalties will divide us or create conflict between us. Which brings us to our third insight. Moses felt an inner 
contentment. That seems kind of odd after all that he's been through and all the confusion and all the turmoil and the long journey. But in verse 21, it says, and Moses was content to live with the man, Ruel, and he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Even though he was a sojourner in a foreign land, he was content to dwell with them. And he marries Zipporah, a daughter of Ruel, and he becomes a father. Verse 22, she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now, some scholars suggest that the word, the name Gershom actually means banished. That's probably the more likely translation of that word. It's kind of an acceptance of the fact that He's not going back to Egypt. He's been banished from there, but has created a new life here. Despite all that had happened and all the confusion, Moses was content. We don't see any evidence of resentment or bitterness resulting from his change of status as prince of Egypt to a banished sojourner. The story could well have ended, he married and lived happily ever after. The perfect fairy tale, right? But all that Moses has gone through during these years was just prelude for how God intended to raise him up as a leader who would deliver his people from bondage. Now, meanwhile, back in Egypt, the Israelites were anguishing over the Uh, Egyptian oppression. And the people cried out to God and, and of course, God ignored them, right? No, wrong. Look carefully at what the passage says next. Because if you grasp what he says about God, it can make a big difference in your own life. God heard the cry of his people. God heard the cry of his people. Verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Moses, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, look carefully at those last two words, and God knew. God knew. First of all, God remembered his covenant with his people. He hadn't forgotten about them. He hadn't forgotten about the promises that he made to them. What did that covenant promise? Well, if we, again, if we go back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, we find that God promised he would give them a land. He would make them a great nation. He would make their name great, a blessing to all the world. And he would bless all the families of the earth through him. Moses wasn't feeling that. Moses wasn't grasping that particular truth. 
He would give them a land, make them a great nation, make their name great, and bless all the families of the earth through him. God had not forgotten about those promises, and, and Moses will indeed play a significant role in seeing those things come to pass. It goes on to say, God heard the cry of his people. God remembered his covenant with the people, and God knew. God knew. He saw the suffering of his people, and he knew. God was aware of what his people were going through. His people. Well, through Jesus, through the new covenant, we who are in Christ are also his people. And we look forward to an eternity in the new heaven and the new earth where we'll be able to meet and converse with the very kinds of people we've been talking about. But now for those of us who are here today, whatever we're facing in life, the question is, does God know what you're going through right now? Don't have to raise your hands. Does God know what you're going through right now? You may be feeling alone in whatever situation that you're struggling with. You may feel like no one cares. No one understands. No one listens to you. Least of all, God. Your feelings often override the facts. What are the facts? Is God aware of what you're going through? Yes. Does God care? Yes. Does God hear your prayers? Yes. Does God answer prayer? Yes. Not always on the timetable we want and not only in the way that we want, even as it was with Moses. See, God carries as much about your journey this morning as your destination. And a key part of that journey is making the decision to follow Christ, to confess your sin, to accept the gift of salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and make him the Lord of your life. And that's where you need to start. And of course, we would love to help you with that. You can become a part of God's eternal family. And you can experience a God who knows and who cares that you can talk to through prayer, that you can learn more about from his word. God cares not only about who you are and where you are today, but also about who you're becoming. And that journey of becoming starts with that decision to give your life to him and to follow him. And if you're at that point in your life here this morning, we'd love to help you take those next steps. And you have those connection cards and on the back side is an area for prayer requests. If you'd like prayer for your situation, if you'd like somebody to contact you and talk with you and pray with you, you can indicate all of that on the card and put it in the offering basket as they're passed. God cares about who you're becoming.
And God will use you today and who you are becoming if you only trust in him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to know that we're not alone. We may feel alone. We may feel like uh, there's nobody who cares. There's nobody hears who hears us, even when we pray. But Father, we know, and you have affirmed, that you are aware of what you're going through, and that you care about what we're going through, and that you hear our prayers, and that you answer our prayers and that you care about who we are and who we're becoming. And Father, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would work within our hearts. And if there are those who need to discuss those next steps in their lives, that they would take advantage of the opportunity to connect with us, Lord, because we're all on this journey together. And we love and support one another in this journey until that day when Jesus comes to receive us to the heaven that he is prepared. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.